It becomes about creativity and working within the constraints so you have access to these. The access to overtime at the market offerings, just greater flexibility to tap into retail interest. Hi, this is Neil, and it's time for a special bonus edition of Cannabis Daily. On November the 3rd, over 400 industry leaders, investors, and policymakers gathered at the New York Academy of Medicine to discuss the future of the New York cannabis market. Here is one of the panels at that event. By the way, tickets are now on sale for the 2023 conference in October next year. Get them now at CannabisNewYork.live. This panel is called The Technology and Innovations That Make Cannabis Tick. What next? Our next panel is about a topic that doesn't get talked about a lot, but it's very important, which is technology innovations. We can look forward to in the cannabis space and how they will impact everything that goes on about everything we've spoken about today. It's my pleasure to bring to, back to the stage Jeremy Burke to moderate this panel with his panelists, again, Leafly's Yoka Miyashida, and two new voices, Neelam Jala, CTO of True Leaf, and John Yang, CEO of Trees, ladies and gentlemen. All right. Hello, everyone. Um, just get my quick intro. I'm Jeremy Burke. I'm a senior reporter at the publication formerly known as Business Insider, now Insider, uh, where I cover the cannabis industry. Um, so without further ado, we're talking about cannabis tech today, and we have a very good panel representing sort of different facets of the industry. So. I'd like to discuss cannabis tech, but I'd also like to discuss the long-term thesis about cannabis and how we go from current challenges to where we all see the industry going in five, 10 years. Um, so with that, I'll kick it to introductions and um, I wanna be a good moderator and keep the trains running on time. So please keep them to a minute or so. Um, so Yoko, I'll start with you. I really wish we could skip over mine because <laughs> I promise this is the last time I'm up on stage, CEO of Leafly, online cannabis marketplace. Uh, John Yang, CEO and founder of Trees, which is a point-of-sale provider in the space. I'm Nilim Jala. I'm the chief technology officer for TrueLeaf, which is one of the largest uh, multi-state operators uh, uh, in the country. Appreciate that. Okay, so my first question is, as my introduction said, what we all here, I believe, may believe in the long-term thesis of cannabis legalization the industry is in a tough spot and the broader economy seems to be pointing towards a recession. We have leaders of different companies here. So how do you, how do you manage through that problem? How do you get to where you want to go today? Um, Yoko, maybe we'll start with you and then we can go down the line again. To. I, I want to be super clear on that statement. We believe in the long-term thesis of sure. cannabis. Yeah. We don't, we may. That is a definitive statement. And I think, you know, in cannabis and in technology, we're actually at a crossroads of a very difficult spot. Valuations, pressure on the technology sector, valuations, pressure on the cannabis sector. And those of us in this space are directly in the center of that. And what we've seen over the last, what I'd say, 18 months is the underwriting thesis on the funding side change and shift overnight from investing in growth to investing in survival and sustainability through this. So for us as a business, we're really focused on we know there are markets on the come. But what can we do today and how do we remain sustainable as we watch this market develop? For a marketplace, we're later on as a, mar as a retail segment establish itself. Let me lay that out. Um, New Jersey, rec markets open this year, 420. We were there on the ground. Uh, there were lines out the door 
before you actually need a cannabis marketplace, you need supply and market to fulfill demand. And it's when we, a market gets to that maturity point where they've got to compete for customers when Leafly can come in and really make a difference and help those businesses grow. So it's about patience and really understanding sort of the, the, the give and take and where's the room and how fast markets are growing, but build a sustainable business for today because the growth is coming. John, please. Yeah, it's great. Um, from the private side, we're seeing valuations range from five to 12 X where it used to be 20 to 50 X not too long ago. Right. Um, but let's face it, we're all startups in a startup industry, right? So naturally we're all survivors by nature of that, even the largest or the smallest, we're all survivors. So what does it take to survive? Because we want to be in the long game. I think it's two areas um, I would preach on as good operators. One is area of focus. The other is just resource allocation. Right, for focus, it's basically pick a lane. I mean, for us at Trees, our lane is a retailer. Whatever their needs are, whatever we need to innovate for the good time or the bad, we're there for them, right? We're not a, we're not a marketplace, we're not a seat of sale, we're a point of sale software for the retailer. Uh, on top of that, resource allocation, you know, we were very fortunate to have raised the Series C round earlier this year. Uh, but even then, you know, we're tightening our belts, right? Instead of hiring more headcount, we're putting that money back and investing in our existing people, right? Because as, as I said, if cannabis is the long game and we're in the early innings in this market where the game hasn't even started, um, we definitely want to allocate our capital and our headcount so that we can survive for the long run. And so may potentially survive so that we can see the grand slam to come. And Neilian, I'll we'll kick the same question to you, but maybe from a CTO perspective, um, how does that affect your division and, and where do you see that moving? Yeah, you know, across the board. Uh, so, we, so we have a truly have a small enough leadership team uh, and, and Kim Rivers, our CEO, she, she keeps on, on harnessing the point that we invest intentionally. So we choose to go into the markets because, and the markets that we choose to go in, we want to have a leadership position out here. Uh, the key point uh, that Yoko brought up was uh, we believe. So we are building for the future while investing in the today. So from a technology perspective, uh, you know, we made a large investment in a, in a large ERP in 2020, and we continue to invest in it. So as the industry continues to evolve in terms of mergers and acquisitions and what is going to happen uh, in the macro situation that we don't control, we continue to focus on things that we, that we control. We continue to focus on product, price, and customers, and how we can serve them better. We believe, that we are battle tested, we have come through tougher times, and now the macro pressures, which are beyond our control, are, are, are putting some additional challenges in front of it. You know, so, so we feel we are up to the task on it. From a technology perspective, uh, we continue to invest, but we continue to invest with the, with the, with the three, five, 10 year uh, uh, you know, horizon on the, on the mind to build things that are gonna be scalable so we can quickly hook up things uh, you know, as quickly as possible when the market does open up. Yeah, appreciate that. Um, John, I wanted to turn back to a point you made about, you know, you've just successfully raised the Series C, um, but private capital, my perspective is still pretty scarce industry. So um, what are some sources of growth that startups have right now? And how do you see that shaking out? Yeah, I actually have a different take. I, I think that the capital is there. Um, they're waiting. Um, for example, this year, the amount of inbound interest I've had from VCs on growth equity and aggregate has far surpassed the last four years combined, but they're looking for a class A assets, right? 
So they're looking for a company that's established, that has a, a road to profitability, still has steady growth, not outrageous growth, but still steady and reasonable growth. And that tends to be the companies that have been focused, as I said earlier. And then, Yoko, maybe on the public side, um, how do you see investment opportunity, um, sources of capital and things like that, if you guys want to grow in the future? Yeah, I think that was one of, you know, at least we went public via SPAC earlier this year in February, and that was one of the underlying theses of why we took that route. Um, you know, one thing about that, we went out on NASDAQ. What did that mean? We had to make very hard choices around our business model. We're non-plant touching, but even then to meet the requirements being of NASDAQ eligible company, there are some hard lines you have to draw. So then it becomes about creativity and working within the constraints so you have access to these. You know, for us, the access to, you know, over time at the market offerings, just greater flexibility to tap into retail interest, for example, is an, a big advantage of being on the US exchanges. And for us, we feel that that's just one step ahead one leg up on not having to be on the Canadian exchanges, for example, to make sure the world, and you know, we really use it as a platform to educate about this industry. I think Mitch said something earlier around, one of the key things, first things we have to do is normalization. That's a big normalizing moment when you're sitting on the you know, NASDAQ stage on 420 with a big sign in New York Times Square touting a cannabis company going public on US markets. So there's both sort of what we believe our work and advocacy to normalize, but then the other flexibility that gives as leaders, as CEOs to say, how do we access then these markets as they develop for capital? And maybe for those in the audience who um, aren't attuned to the minutia as this as you are, can you talk about some of the restrictions that the NASDAQ has for a company like Leafly? Well, you know, really what you have to be, you have to be able to say, and you have to actually have legal opinions supporting the fact that your business is U.S. federally legal. First and foremost, that means we're non-plant touching. But, you know, let me just give a little background on marketplaces. Most consumer marketplaces are done on a take rate percentage of the transaction. We can't do that. You can't take a percentage of a federally illegal transaction. So that means we come up with uh, innovative and unique business models to monetize on the retailer and brand side. But it's really about understanding what those constraints are, innovating within those constraints, and building a business model that fits within that. Um, I wanted to move the discussion a little bit more forward-looking. And Neilium, I know you've had sort of a long career outside of cannabis. I'm wondering from your perspective, are there any corollaries you can draw to other industries you've worked in, or is this situation unique in your view? Um, so, so I've worked for two decades. I worked for, uh, you know, doing tech, comp uh, you know, tech work in retail and CPG companies. I necessarily don't see a classic difference between the business. So a retail business runs buy, move, sell. You buy the product, you move the product, you sell the product. Uh, a CPG business is basically you have the manufacturing component that comes into into play as well. So, so again, you manufacture it, and then then you figure out a way to to distribute it, and then you run through a wholesale channel or what have you. That is where the industry is progressing. That is what we are building towards. The challenge that happens now is, and somebody highlighted uh, in the in, in the investor conversation that there are a lot of amazing companies that are being built right now that are trying to figure out how to connect these Lego blocks when you go state to state to state to state so that the operators can continue to operate. And the, the, the folks who are sitting in, the, in, in corporate, they can focus on you know, how to engage with the customer, be it on the ground, be it in the store, be it on the website and what have you. So, so I feel uh, that, uh, you know, I think the, 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 
in a couple of years with the with the legalization the way it is going things are going to continue to become a, a lot more re traditional retail centric or tra traditional cpg centric so you'll see a, a a correlation with a unilever or a colgate or a or a procter and gamble or a correlation with the with the walmarts of the world or what have you so so again i think the the legalization or, or the regulations is what what the difference in the complexity is. other than that i think it's pretty simple business yeah um, John, I want to kick that same question to you from where you sit as a startup. I'm wondering if you're seeing similar things or you have, you know, a different opinion on that. Yeah, it is retail, but it's a mix of different types of retail, which is really interesting, which propelled me to enter this space. You know, I think of it as it's a combination of mainstream retail, luxury retail, and some aspect of grocery shopping. Why grocery? So if you go to a traditional retail shop, let's, let's call it Nike's, you have essentially a 20% chance on average of converting to a sale. But if you're visiting a grocery store, it's closer to 90%. And when you're visiting dispensaries, our data shows it's closer to grocery shopping, 90%. So you're not so worried about the conversion aspect, right? Um, if you get down to the mainstream versus the luxury difference, mainstream retail, you're carrying as many products as you can. So on average, we're seeing in our retailers, they're carrying about 600 SKUs on average. It's a lot. And it may make for work for some, but what we're actually seeing is that the retailers that are carrying uh, a lot less SKUs are actually the ones that are seeing less sales decline when macroeconomic conditions worsen. Um, that's kind of like a luxury retail, right? Luxury retail, it's crafted. It's a, it's a very crafted set of SKUs. There's a brand purpose to it. They tend to see more customer loyalty. Yoko, I saw you nodding along when Nelia mentioned um figuring out how to enter different markets. They'll have their own little rules. I, I'm wondering your perspective on that. Sorry, yeah. that. That's so pertinent to why I was smiling when he made that comment was he said the Lego blocks and this industry. And so operators can operate. That's what we're talking about. Yeah. And, you know, it's fun to sit next to John here because we just did a partnership earlier this year because retailers get into the space not to figure out the tech stack. That's really not their personal passion and process. That's not why consumers are coming. So our job as technology providers to this industry is to work together and make it seamless, reduce their cost of operations, make this easy. And so I think a lot about cooperation in this space to start tackling and hammering away at some of the challenges that come from a highly fragmented and regulated sector. Um, you asked about what are the similarities from my experience. I come out of an I come out of news and media, imagery marketplace, getting images. I've spent 14 years of my career there, local market, local product, local market business. And you see this a lot, right? it's, especially on the POS side, of really, truly understanding the dynamics and structure of each market to be able to serve it appropriately. That's where I want to follow, follow up on, yeah, the, please, yeah, on yeah. the Lego blocks. We want to be the Lego blocks for an MSO, yes. right? Because they can't invest forever into their own tech. It's very costly, as you know. Um, what, what, what does the end consumer care about? I think the end consumer cares about three things. Cares about education, cares about consistency, and cares about convenience. So what does that mean for technology providers, right? So we have to focus on areas of product content, data accuracy, self-service exploratory, self-service checkout, payments, how to acquire new customers. And to what I said earlier, we can't do it all. And to what Yoko said, we have to be able to find partners, especially Leafly, well-known as an encyclopedia, right? How do we work together, get the product content, unify it, so that when a new New York operator gets online, that catalog is pristine from day one. Right. Yeah. Okay, so... I want to make some big predictions here, right? Um, Biden recently kickstarted, um, slowly but surely, the federal cannabis reform process. There's more attention on the industry and on 
cannabis sector more generally than there was six months ago. When are we going to see Oracle and Amazon Web Services come into the industry? What, what needs to happen to get there? Um, and does that worry you or does that excite you? Um, Neilium, I'll, I'll let you take that first. So, so we, uh, Amazon is already in, uh, not to run cannabis-specific models, but the AWS technology, you know, a lot of our stack is built on AWS technologies. So Amazon is already participating in there. Now, what they will do as a retailer or as a wholesaler of that product assortment, I think remains to be, to be figured out. Oracle, on the other hand, I think they will jump in at some point in time. And I think it's gonna be about having a model ready, like how, so, so Dutchy was here, right? Or Dutchy is here. So they, they, they have a platform that is built specifically for cannabis, right? It's running for, you know, they, uh, uh, she talked about 6,000 dispensaries and what have you, right? The question is, could you scale it? Could you scale a platform like that to those levels, SAP can and Oracle can. However, buying that boilerplate stuff is not gonna be of any use to us. It's just gonna be a traditional ERP system that takes three years to implement and this industry runs a whole lot faster. Mm. So, so I think probably at some point in time when you see the value proposition of the $100 billion uh, coming up in the next five, seven years, when you talk about the legal versus the, the illicit part of the industry, I think they are going to jump in. It's just a matter of time. I do believe that they probably may not be a dominant player, though, if they don't start now. Why is that? Do you think that Dutchie will outcompete them because they have the network already, or, or just not, yeah. not in the not in the context of of, of Dutchie? I think uh, you know they so these companies no traditional retail. The way the world is going to go, and you heard the the conversation earlier in the morning when you talk about a two tier structure in New York. We are talking about. The retailers are going to be different and the people who are going to produce are going to be different in order to make money in that scenario your supply chain has to be truly optimized your cost of goods sold has to be truly optimized and without understanding the business and the product cycle and participating in that for a couple of years it's going to be really really hard for them to make uh, sense out of or, or be able to sell that product portfolio to somebody i don't know whether it's going to be dutchy or not or we do a lot of our custom work as well I, I think it's going to be parts of both. There's a part of Oracle, there's a part of SAP, there's a part of Leafly, there's a part of Dutchy, and, and so on and so forth. It just has to be figured out in a way where, you know, to Yoko's point, uh, operators just need to be operators, and the cost of technology needs to be really, really low. I think the entry level, uh, the entry cost of technology today for a cannabis retail dispensary is two, three, four, if not ten times higher than a traditional retail store. Because it's all about optimization and quick throughput. And that's not the case in cannabis industry right now. Um, John, I'll kick the same broad question to you. And if there's any sort of points you want to, I saw you nodding. So <laughs> please go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, it's great points. I mean, yeah, yes, there are a number of operators or software providers that's already powering the space, right? It takes a lot of customization to the points already mentioned. Um, but I actually see it as, you know, there are entrenched players like Leafly, like Trees, like others that becomes this gateway of normalization for traditional technology players. So uh, let's talk about FinTech and payments, right? We're actually actively talking to a number of banks and FinTech providers. They want to support the space. How do they want to support it? By offering banking, lending, payroll, processing, the traditional services that uh, normal retailers get access to, right? But they need to find a good distribution partner to do so. The, one, the ones that are already in front of the retailers. And so we announced the acquisition yesterday, effectively uh, acquiring a fintech team that already has an engine supporting the space, but also really they're, they're 
purpose is to be that conduit for more banks and more fintech providers to enter the space. The Biden announcement, you know, whether we like it or not, it's good for politics, hasn't made a tremendous impact yet. The, the activities of different providers wanting to tackle the space has happened many months, many years ago already. Yoko, please. Uh, you know, mine's a combination of a comment John made earlier around focus and specialization. And the, you cannot have an under, for non-endemics, the word of caution really is do not underestimate the complexity of this industry. So for those of us, you know, our job is to figure out who we are, who we are in this space and to focus and do be the best at that because we will be gateways for the bigger players if and when they want to come in and, you know, be sure, it, like, there's no doubt they will want a piece of this. We announced a deal just a couple of weeks ago partnering with Uber Eats in Canada. And, you know, for them, what, was, what, what, what did that mean for us? It was compliance, but really opening up and normalizing consumer purchasing on channels where they already are. So for us to think we're going to replicate or duplicate or create that when that consumer demand is already aggregated, the, co the conversation then needs to shift to how do we work together? And how do we leverage the strengths that we've developed, that focus that each of us have to build this together? And I think that's the real tension that we're all gonna be navigating, but thinking that it's purely competition, I think it sets us up poorly. Tension gets easier yeah. when times are tougher though. Right. Um, so I want to move right along quickly here, just watching the clock. Yoko, you mentioned Uber, and that actually preempts my next question very well. Um, what do you see as the biggest game-changing pieces of technology, policy developments, whatever it may be, that will affect the cannabis industry moving forward? In my view, I was going to ask the question around the Uber partnership. It's relatively limited right now, but the long-term implications of that are huge, right? So. Um, Make a bold prediction, Yoko. We'll start with you. Yeah. Well, I don't know if it's a bold prediction because they're here. They're interested. Why? Because this is where we started. This is this will grow. This is a growth industry. We will see a hundred billion dollar industry by the end of the, this decade. And you don't actually have to create the demand for that. Demand's already there. It's just in the illicit market for now. So it's really thinking about this expansive ecosystem within this context of really unique local characteristics, right? We just heard from, you know, the people who have created the policy and regulatory structure in the state of New York. And what did they say? We want local small businesses to thrive. We are setting the rules up in that way. All right, let's figure out what all these pieces are but ultimately build and work together to leverage and capitalize on that. So if it's, you know, working with the largest consumer acquisition channels, you're still going to need education. You still need the science. You still need the research. You still need to help consumers figure out what to try and buy. We're going to be here to fill that gap. You know, John, <laughs> I can pass it over to him, and I'm sure he's going to be able to fill another gap. Well, I was going to add, add to the Uber Eats announcement. And, and so the first thing when I saw the announcement, I went to Tinker. I'd set my location to Toronto and said, what does this look like, right? It's actually, it, so what the point I'm trying to make here is they're dabbling, but they could get a lot better. Someone like Uber Eats and Uber in general needs to learn about the space. Because today, if you go try that app, uh, you're looking at very little actual product content, not many pictures, names are spelled wrong. So it's not like ordering a hamburger on Uber Eats. You're looking at two, 300 products of things you don't know. So, most likely you're not going to make your first purchase on Uber Eats, nor your second or third purchase, right? Uh, so there's a lot more to 
to do? Yeah. Make a prediction. <laughs> what do you think? What's your biggest game changer? <laughs> I think that self-service um, is a huge game changer that, that we want to invest in, right? So when you're entering a dispensary, some dispensaries are, are really fantastic. They could be as big as almost a, a Walmart sometimes, right? Um, but a lot of them are shaping out like Apple stores. But regardless of the model, there's a big opportunity to focus on self-service. Because earlier I said, there's a 90% chance of converting. So someone's gonna buy something. Why don't they be able to explore the pillars within the store, learn about the products, add the products, check out the products, possible right especially in our industry and so that's something that's not a prediction it's going to come within the next two three years Milium, i'll give you the last word on this yeah i'd say three things uh, scale distribution and consumer in reverse order i think we have to focus on that you know uber announcement sounds really good that's one channel and we are talking about a unified commerce kind of a component out there where retail cpg direct store delivery, wholesale models, direct to consumer, uh, you know, business to business, business to business to consumer, all of that will play in. And whoever figures it out is going to be, uh, be sitting pretty. Now, what I would say is the biggest game changer, if you ask me, is going to be enablement of interstate commerce. Because today you have to go and build and invest your dollars state by state by state. Instead of doing that, if we can just ship product across uh, state borders, that is going to bring so much opportunity for optimization across the board. And if you're looking for some keywords out there to, uh, to put some buzz there, I think blockchain enabled supply chain will, will become possible in that regard because now you will, the, the, the vendor portfolio could be increased, if you will, in terms of production, cultivation, and supply chain. And then connection, the loyalty programs, uh, you know, a few uh, folks were talking about the customer loyalty, creation of loyalty programs that enable that are enabled through the new payment types of credit cards coming into the mix, uh, if save, back, uh, save banking passes, if you will, if not before, you know, that is going to be a game changing scenario as well. And then the connection with, if you want to totally go off on the limb out here, yep. a connection with Web3.0 or Metaverse, that's a far-fetched thing, but it is here. So it's going to happen. The ball is rolling on that. So the question is, whoever is going to figure out that in the context of loyalty and payment is going to be sitting pretty. In the last 30 seconds, can you go into that a little bit more? What, what, what could that look like, the, the combination of cannabis and the metaverse? Well, the way, the way I see it is I'm a 16-year-old. So the way I see it is they don't like to go out. They don't like to do stuff. They will do their homework. And so when they are in the workforce, they'll probably work from home. And uh, on a Friday evening, they'll probably click a button order the pizza they'll click a button order their read and that's going to be delivered to home and they're going to be hooked up to a metaverse machine with their best looking avatar if you will playing out there <laughs> playing out there and celebrating their uh, uh, their friday evenings with their friends and uh, in the community that they're going to be part of that is coming as part of the the younger gen z's as they're going to come in so it, all of that will have to play together. And this is where the Lego blocks are going to come into play, where I don't think I'm going to build everything. I don't think they are going to build everything. I think we just have to have enough places in there that we can connect them in a cohesive fashion. That's coming. Yeah, I appreciate that. As a uh, millennial, I'll probably stick to the, the bar scene myself. But um, no, we'll, we'll leave it there. I really appreciate it. Now you can secure your seat at next year's event right this second. It's scheduled for the 4th of October, 2023. Tickets are on sale at CannabisNewYork.live. You'll find the link in the show notes.